Hello, and welcome to the Genome Podcast. I'm Misha Angrist from the Initiative for Science and Society at Duke University and the editor of Genome Magazine. My guest, Michelle Myers, is an assistant professor and associate director of research ethics at Geisinger Center for Translational Bioethics and Healthcare Policy in Danville, PA. Beyond that, she's one of the smartest people I've ever met. We spoke a few months ago and talked about, among other things, having a doctorate in religious studies while being a non-believer, being a professional misfit, the weirdness of the institutional review board system, how we manage biospecimens and data, whether we should read terms of service agreements, and what it's like to live with an uncertain version of the gene responsible for Huntington's disease. Here it is, my conversation with Michelle Meyer. expectations for the trajectory of your career? My expectation actually was that I would write. That you would write what? Well, by college I had thought creative nonfiction. I, I you know, I didn't feel like I was really good at plot. <laughs> and so I and applied to some programs, got into Iowa, got into Columbia, got into some some good programs. Simultaneously though applied to PhD programs in applied ethics, more or less. And really, I think what dictated the choice was just pure fear, silliness on my part, but fear. I thought, I'm going to do creative you know, creative nonfiction, sort of personal essay stuff, and what am I going to write about? I haven't done anything. And so I, when I accepted and I ended up going to UVA because they had a lot of... Um, they had invested a lot in practical ethics and applied ethics, and especially biomedical ethics. So there was Harvard and Chicago and Yale, which were all sort of div schools, divinity schools, and um, I had come up mostly through religious studies with a minor in moral philosophy. So that positioned me, which was not something I had planned for, positioned me really for religious studies PhDs more than philosophy PhDs. And the top programs were all you know schools of divinity and. At one point or another, each of those schools, very, very fine schools, had had some, you know, some offerings in, in applied ethics, but at that time, not so much. Uh, and Jim Childress was at UVA, and John Aris was at UVA, and John Fletcher, um, two of the three of them have now passed on, unfortunately, but they were all at UVA. And so when I went there, I remember telling Jim Childress, sitting in his office and saying, you know, here's my plan. I'm going to do my coursework. I'm going to take my comprehensive exams based on the coursework. Then I'm going to take a leave of absence, and I'm going to go do my MFA in creative nonfiction. Then I'm going to come back and write a dissertation. And, you know, bless his heart, Jim Childress just smiled and nodded. And, I I mean, I suppose that's a feasible option. But, you know, once you're that far down the rabbit hole, I mean, extracting yourself and then, oh, I'm going to go do a creative nonfiction, you know, master's, MFA, and then come back. And, no, that was not that was not something that happened or, or that I even, I think pretty quickly, I, I sort of abandoned, you know, all, all pretense of that being a thing. And then, of course, law school instead became a different, tra- a different strand. Before we talk about law school, did you grow up in a religious household? No. My father is a lapsed Catholic. My mother is a lapsed Protestant of some variety. I was, um, in theory, raised to be to question and to just you know whatever religious tradition blah 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 
in practice, they raised me to be an atheist. I mean, it, it, I, I can't say that it was, and, and that's how I identify, uh, as full on the A word, not, not even agnostic, atheist. But how many other atheists were in your PhD program? I don't need an I'm, exact number. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> probably not a lot. I mean, the irony, one of the reasons I was sort of skittish about going to a divinity school for precisely that reason, and of course one of the ironies is that the old joke about Harvard divinity school anyway is, you know, where do you go on Harvard to find all the atheists, the div school? So I think there are different cultures. I was really not very well informed about a lot of things. I don't come from an academic family at all. I'm nobody else. There are a few graduate degrees of, of this and that, but no one else in my family is an academic. And so the whole the whole thing was just completely foreign to me. And I think, you know, I was young. I went to PhD program straight from undergrad. I should have done more informational interviews, tried to sort of figure out some of this stuff. But, you know, it is what so it is. So you would do it differently? Well, I would think long and hard about religious studies versus philosophy PhD for one. And mostly that's, that's, that's less because of the training I actually got, which was quite philosophical. I, I trained with Ron Green as an undergrad at Dartmouth. I trained with Jim Childress in my PhD studies. Jim comes from a Society of Friends, a.k.a. Quaker background. Fight Quakers fight. Yeah, I have, I have no earthly idea what Ron's theological views are. I assume he kind of reads as a, as a secular Jew. I really don't know. And that's kind of the point, is that in both cases, their work was, was secular humanistic. It was in philosophical. It was not uh, coming from a particular faith tradition of any sort. And so my actual training was, was great and in many ways um, better for me, and I would say in general, than the average American analytical philosophy department where, you know, it was difficult to, it would have been difficult to do continental stuff, it would have been difficult to do applied ethics. I mean, those are kind of all frowned upon, and those were some of my, my interests. But it did, or at least I felt, that coming out of a PhD program with a religious studies PhD created a professional identity problem for me, uh, in as much as, you know, if you want sort of a secular philosophical position on you know, the ethics of X, you're going to go to a philosopher. If you want to know, well, what is, you know, what does a Reformed Jew think of X? Or what does a Catholic, Roman Catholic think of, you know, X? Then, you know, you'd go to a religious studies person, and I wasn't going to be able to fulfill that niche. So it, it made me worry that the people I trained with just happened through happenstance to have, you know, taken that sort of approach, and they had come up through religious studies departments at a time when bioethics was kind of up for grabs. I mean, they both sort of in the 60s, it was just being invented. But by the time I was going to be on the market, I worried that you know the jobs would be particular to a particular faith tradition, um, and I didn't want to be writing from any particular faith tradition, obviously. And that was enough to drive you to law school? Not exactly. Um, the law was always something that was of interest to me. My grandfather had been um, a practicing attorney. Uh, was always something that I thought I might well be pretty good at and was was of interest to me. And so I, when I went, I thought, you know, I need a secular credential. And I, for about two seconds, thought about getting a second PhD in philosophy and talked to John Aris, the late, now late, always great John Aris, who said, well, you know, you're going to be a misfit there too. Because I said, look, I really feel like a misfit in religious studies. He's like, yeah, you're, you'd be a misfit here too. U.S. departments of philosophy, very analytic, um, you know, 
like you did your undergraduate dissertation on Sartre, you know, you're continental, you know, applied ethics. So it was really, you just have two PhDs worth of, of being a misfit. And the law degree was also more practical. I also wasn't that excited about, you know, seven more years or whatever of epistemology and metaphysics and ontology and this and that and the other thing. So it was a combination of a course correction or, or a complement to the PhD. I thought something even more practical with a secular credential that I could kind of speak from. And plan B was, you know, if for whatever reason academia doesn't work out or I decide it's not for me or whatever, that was probably, other than the writing thing, that was probably the next best uh, alternative for, for a career for me was actually practicing law. So, What kind of law? I'm not sure what I would have said had you asked me before I started law school, probably something silly. Once I had some experience in law school and clerking, et cetera, et cetera, I think I would have very much liked appellate law. Um, these are deep dives, close readings, you know, it's hermeneutics. It's, it's a lot of what um, you're trained to do in a humanities PhD program anyway. Uh, I would have had to work my way up. We have to stand before a panel of judges and they start, you know, you get three words out and they start interrupting you. And that, that would not have been my first choice of a good time. But writing the briefs, yeah, that, that, I, would have, um, that I would have enjoyed quite a bit, I think. I'm wondering sort of how you found your tribe and your subject matter. I do not feel that I found my tribe at all. I, I just embraced being a misfit. I'm just kind of, I've just kind of resigned to that at this point. Yeah, my subject matter, which is primarily research ethics, research regulation at this point, with a, a heavy dose of genomics and some reproduction in there, that was just kind of an accident. And I think it was not something that I was especially focused on in my PhD program. Of course, I was introduced to it. I taught the basics of it. It wasn't something that was um, especially exciting to me until after I went to law school and then was reintroduced to it. And with the benefit of legal training, I thought, this is a really bizarre system. Um, I mean, these are like mini, IRBs are mini regulators. And, and every reason we have for, for developing and sustaining the administrative state is just completely lacking here. There's no accountability. There's no transparency. There's basically no expertise. I mean, these are all reasons why you know, we delegate some policymaking to administrative executive agencies um, because they have these attributes. IRBs lack all of them. I thought, what is going on here? And that was just one of many, many sort of reactions that I had. And I just thought, boy, there's just this enormous research agenda. And it kind of went from there through, through you know, a couple of postdocs and, and my early faculty career. So that's at the moment where I've where I've focused, as far as tribes go, I mean there is a you know research ethics is sort of a subfield, but as you know there are you know I would say different um, approaches to that subject, and in a lot of ways I think I identify more with investigators with scientists um, than with research ethicists or IRBs necessarily. You know, the more I've worked with IRBs and, and now here at Geisinger had a leadership role, the more sympathetic I am to the position that one is in when they serve in that capacity. And I've, I've served on an IRB before, uh, before being at Geisinger as well. 
But um, yeah, I sort of view myself almost as a handmaiden um, of, of the scientific community and as kind of a translator between the research ethics, IRB world, and the scientific world and, and trying to, and you know, they both get it wrong sometimes. It's not all IRBs, right? I mean, there are plenty of, of scientists who are just off to the races and not really, not really thinking carefully about, you know, the effects of, of what they are doing or plan to do. Um, so there, I don't want to make it, you know, seem too one-sided, but yeah, I feel I, I would describe myself as a fairly unorthodox research ethicist. I'm not unique in that respect. There are, there are other fellow travelers for sure, but what, what position or positions do you think you hold that are most abhorrent to <laughs> the establishment? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I guess the whole Henrietta Lacks, you know, biospecimen thing and the whole revision of the common rule, that whole debate we've had for the last six years or so is a decent example. And it's also an example of how I'm hardly the only person working in this area from a law and bioethics perspective who takes this view, but I think certainly um, it could be argued or some could, could be, might be surprised that, that I take this view. And the view is that when data or tissue is collected for other purposes, I mean, the view really just matches the, the existing law, right? Um, when it's taken for another purpose, so it's taken for clinical purposes and you've got leftover tissue, um, it's de-identified per HIPAA and non-identifiable per the common rule, the risks are not zero, um, the privacy risks are not zero, but they're relatively small. Um, and lots of things we do in life that we don't really have a choice over involve non-zero risks. Um, vaccination is, is a decent example. It does not cause autism, but it's not zero risk, right? There are some bad effects for some people on occasion of, of, um, of being vaccinated, and yet, there is a broad policy choice that, you know, we're, we're all sort of in this together. There's solidarity, and um, we compensate people, of course, for those for those injuries. But the benefit for everybody is massively outweighs uh, the the small risks. And I, I look at research with non-identifiable biospecimens and data as, as very similar, and so I'm not outraged that all of us have had our data and our biospecimens used without our identities attached to them to further research. Um, I'm not convinced. I realize that some people have objections to particular research projects. We also have objections to the way our tax money is spent. We and, certainly do. And yet, <laughs> in a democracy, I mean, or in, in, a, in a world where you've got you know, you've, you have to have these sort of aggregate decisions made. We just can't vote on every single thing, right? We have sort of representative democracy. So that's kind of the, the overall approach. So, so people who think, no, I should be able to say yes or no to every study that my, you know, my specimens, even if it's not identified with me in any way, just pure autonomy, I should be able to say yes or no. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical about that. I'm not convinced about that, much less that, you know, they should be paid necessarily. I know you're interested in research conducted by social media companies, um, or maybe it's not research, maybe it's just quality improvement. Terms of service for those sorts of companies, terms of service for 
direct-to-consumer genetic companies like 23andMe and informed consent for traditional academic research studies. You know, from my cynical point of view, what, what unites all of those things is people don't read any of it. Um, they just click through or they initial the page or check the box. Should they read it? Would it change their mind? Would they understand it? I mean, the terms of service, I personally would say no, you shouldn't read it. It's, it's an entirely rational decision to save an hour of your life reading 10-point font, ridiculous boilerplate stuff. I think a lot of it is, is impenetrable to the average person, and you know, even if it's not impenetrable in a sort of literacy sense, it's vague enough that how would you know what this really means? So I don't think that that's you know, putting the word research in a 20,000 word terms of service or data use agreement or anything else, that's not ethically meaningful consent. Let me ask the question another way, which is, I mean, you're someone who has read the terms of service and who can read the terms of service and understand exactly the Faustian bargain you're making or otherwise. How often have you done that and said, oh my God, this is terrible, or at the very least, this is a deal breaker, and I'm not going to sign up? Almost never. But so first of all, I mean, I don't, I don't go around reading terms of service like normal people. You know, when I download and I upgrade iOS, I mean, I'm click to accept, mm -hmm. click to accept, you know, continue, next. I am not reading that stuff. Um, I'm not that much of a misfit or that much of a freak. Yeah, occasionally I, I have occasion to read such documents for my work. It personally, I don't, I can't recall a circumstance in which I would have ever said, oh no, I'm not signing up for this, but I have particular privacy preferences, which are, you know, perhaps more forgiving than, than other people's. You know, I think, I think you could, I mean, in theory, could you smuggle in some term into a terms of service that was just unconscionable? You know, I mean, the classic example that everyone uses in their slide, right, is the study where, you know, Londoners where they said, would you like free Wi-Fi and, you know, click here to say yes. And somewhere smuggled in the terms of service was, you know, you have to like give away your firstborn child or name your firstborn child, you know, Byron or something, whatever. No court would enforce that, right? So, I mean, on the one hand, no one reads them. No one arguably really should because they're pretty standard. You can't, it's not as if you could bargain your way out of them, your alternative is to not take the service and depending on what service it is, right? So that's the other thing. I mean, and that's the, I think the difference between that, you know, like a, um, you know, an Apple software agreement versus, you know, a, a traditional academic research invitation. In most cases, unless it's like, you know, a, a cancer trial where the trial is the treatment, research is totally optional for you, right? Your alternative is not to do it, it's to go about your, your life. And so, yeah, you should read that. For terms of service, though, I mean, realistically, there are certain services, everyone uses them, you want to use them. You know, people say that they have certain privacy preferences. Even when you tell them, okay, this is what's happening, they may not be happy about it, but they still accept it because they want the underlying service, right? Um, and, and anything truly unconscionable, you know, uh, would not be held up, I think, by, by a court of law just because it was in the terms of service. So I think it's a pretty rational decision to avoid that. Now, I think companies that want to do a lot of research and want to avoid the kind of brouhaha that Facebook 
experienced uh, and other companies have experienced should find a better way of providing notice to their users or their customers that this is the type of activity they do. So Facebook did this study of emotional contagion where they altered their customers' news feeds. They did not disclose this ahead of time, and then there was this paper published in PNAS, and then there was, I guess, a shitstorm that erupted after the fact, and you wrote extensively about this, and what's your bottom line? What, what should have happened? Well, so I think the first thing is to, uh, is to explain how I see this activity, what they did. There were two academic hypotheses about the effects of newsfeed, which is an innovation, 2006 era innovation, um, that, that just kind of is a fire hose of your friends' updates. And I think the closest thing prior to 2006, the closest thing to such a fire hose was like the annual holiday letter. You know, oh, you know, little, little Chansey yes. is, you know, has won first prize in her pageant and, you know, whatever. And, and if you wanted to feel, feel bad about your life, you would have to sort of wait until December. Um, well, this was sort of an everyday type thing. And so the primary academic hypothesis was just that. It was very unflattering. But the idea is, you know, we feel worse about our own lives when we read what are admittedly, um, you know, posturing on, on Facebook. No, Everyone's marriage is perfect mm. on Facebook. Right. Everyone's career is perfect, right? So everyone's we vacation. would feel better if Cousin Joey was a meth head. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it's not very it's not very flattering, but but this this was a hypothesis called social comparison, right? And so both of these are social psychology hypotheses that had gotten the most attention in the media, you know, alone together, blah blah blah, and, and there were claims, empirical claims, based on observation, small observational studies mostly, that uh, Facebook was making people sad, or resentful, jealous of other people, depressed, et cetera, et cetera. Then on the other hand, was this was this almost polar opposite hypothesis also from social psychology called mood contagion which says no you sort of you know our moods are infectious this is something that we knew to be true in real life where you can um, sort of facial feedback hypothesis unclear less clear whether it translated to text but there was this hypothesis and if that was true you know so if the social comparison theory is true then what's risky for mental health of Facebook users is being exposed to, you know, all the successful people on your feed who are telling you how great their lives are. That's what's, you know, risky for your mental health. If, on the other hand, uh, mood contagion is true, then um, actually those posts are are protective of mental health, right? Because your happiness um, should 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 uh, spread like a virus to me and make me happier. What's troubling then, in fact, would be the negative posts, the meth head posts, right, where where that sort of, you know, would, would bum us all out in a, in a sort of viral way. And ask yourself, you know, so it's this innovation, and Mark Zuckerberg doesn't know exactly what he's doing. I mean, you know, look, he's, he's here's an idea. This seems cool. Let's, let's have this thing called Newsfeed. Great. He doesn't know what the effects of Newsfeed are going to be. No one, none known to the, the Facebook engineers, right? No one knows what the effects are. And we can't regulate everything like a drug. We can't say, well, if you're going to innovate, first you've got to go through a phase one, two, three trial, and the FDA has to weigh in. You, you can't sort of live that way. That's not realistic. But at some point midstream in your product or your service, you start getting 
credible, albeit not dispositive evidence from academics saying your service is is posing mental health risks in one or or both of two different ways, depending positive versus negative posts, right? What is a responsible innovator supposed to do? From my perspective, a responsible innovator uses its position, which it uniquely has because it controls the algorithm, so it's able to do a robust study of this with an RCT. You, you figure it out, right? You figure out what's going on here and whether your, your service is actually causing people harm or not. That's more responsible to me than not studying it, which was a completely viable option for Facebook. You know, sure, maybe some people were were quitting because of all of the media hype about, oh, people are, Facebook makes you sad. But obviously not that many because they have, you know, billions of users. They were doing fine. They didn't need to study this. So compared to the alternative, which it's always important to do in the real world, I think studying it was a good thing to do. Well, now what about consent? Well, this is a behavioral study. If you told people, here's what we're looking at and why, it would have completely biased the results. No respectable social scientist would have taken it seriously. So as I said, I mean, it would be nice if face the Facebooks, the Googles of the world would say up front in a, in a more transparent way than the terms of service, look, we are doing things all the time to try to figure out how to make a better experience for you. And to be clear, some of those things benefit the user and the company. Some benefit just the company and aren't really neither here nor there for the user. Some benefit the company at the expense of the user. There's a whole range of ways in which you can use science, right, and, and data analysis and collection. Um, so I'm not naively suggesting that every time they, you know, an A-B test is conducted, it's to benefit um, users or customers. I do think in this case... Uh, that it certainly had that potential. It, it falls squarely within quality improvement. Uh, the common rule didn't apply to it, but if it had, it easily could have been characterized as pure quality improvement that would have been not only exempt, not exempt, but just it would not have uh, fallen within the common rule at all. You know, the, the science communication could have used some some work. I mean, when you publish something, you know, mass evidence of, you know, mass contagion, mood contagion, that's a little scary. Use the word manipulation, the average person, um, because it had to do with mood. And then you had the word manipulation, which is a term of art and science. But you, you combine those two words sure. together, people lose their minds. And that's that's what happens. That's what happened. Yeah. It's kind of a tone deaf. Yeah, although, I mean... You know, they had published lots of studies before of voting behavior, and no one had right. really blinked. Um, so it's 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 a little bit of a mystery why this one in particular. And so I think they weren't prepared for it because nobody had, had done it. That's the other thing is, I mean, you do have to look at risk, right? And so from my perspective, these were very minor manipulations of the content, the emotional valence of one's news feed. It's important to understand that since day one of 2006, when Newsfeed was rolled out, it has been algorithmically curated. So, you know, when, when people say, oh, they manipulated your Newsfeed. Yes, they did every single day. There is no such thing as an unmanipulated Newsfeed. There never has been. There never will be. We don't, we don't want it. And it, it's at this point, there are some, some 100,000 um, criteria for, for picking the roughly 300 posts out of roughly 1,500 that each of us are eligible to see at any given time and prioritizing those in a feed. And it's it's proprietary, so we don't know exactly, you know, but you can imagine that um, emotional valence probably plays 
a factor if, if for no other reason than through engagement metrics. Um, until recently, until they introduced, you know, this the, the crying emoticons and the, the I'm angry emoticons and all of that, all you could do was like something. And to yeah. the extent that you're much more likely to see something if people have liked it, and to the extent that people generally don't like you know, I got fired today. You know, they generally like only positive news. Yeah. It had a built-in tendency to prioritize positive, positive news, and and that's where this social contagion versus social comparison versus mood contagion became important to understand the effects of of a a news feed that for most of us is fairly heavily dominated by quote unquote positive positive news. Puppies. Yeah, but you know the the important point, I think, is that there are collectively, individually and collectively good days and bad days on a medium like Facebook or Twitter. Um, there are some metrics that actually sort of track, and especially for Twitter, or, you know, but also for, for Facebook, for the accounts that are public. And they'll look at things like, you know, the Boston bombing was obviously a very bad day on, on social media platforms. Lots of, if you just um, use the software to code language, obviously lots of negative language being used on social media, you know, on that day and, and, and the immediately following days. And so the mo- very mild manipulations of positive and negative words in people's feeds were almost certainly within the standard of care that every Facebook user is exposed to, you know, say within a month or a couple of months. The difference here was that it was sort of cleaned up uh, in a way to allow people to draw some causal inferences. But I don't think that there's good reason to think that people were exposed to greater risks in that one-week experiment in the first week of January 2012 than they are in any other week as Facebook users. And so when people start saying, Facebook manipulated people just for the fun of it, just to see what would happen, and they didn't care whether people would leap off bridges to their death because of it, is is just is hysterical and wrong uh, and, and on so many different Levels, and that's how I kind of got into. You know, it started my writing on it. Just started. Um, people were saying, "Oh, this didn't have IRB review." You know, therefore, why not? And so I had to explain what the deal is with IRB review and when it applies and when it doesn't. And then people said, "Well, Cornell was involved, so there should have been IRB review." No, Cornell wasn't engaged in research. Here's how that works. And then it was, well, but there wasn't any informed consent. And, and human subjects research is always unethical if there's no informed consent. Well, no, actually, that's not the case. Most people don't think that's the case. It's not the case under federal regulatory law. If the common rule had applied, and here are the circumstances under which, and here's why. And, and you know, so it could have been human subjects research that, you know, uh, uh, had a waiver of informed consent, or it could have just been quality improvement and not been human subjects research at all. Uh, and then I got more, you know, more deeply into the sort of responsible innovation piece of it and, and what, what actually an ethical you know, Mark Zuckerberg should should do. And I actually think um, an ethical Mark Zuckerberg should have done something a lot closer to what was actually done than to what the critics say, which was this should never have been run. We should have just carried on. And that made me, that's another, I would say, good example of, I actually think if you, if you understand the study and the context, I actually don't think it's that unorthodox at all. But it certainly strikes, I'm sure it, it has striked people as being unorthodox coming from a research ethicist. Do you have a family history of Huntington's disease? Um, yeah, I have a an extended family member who died of Huntington's and other members of that branch who are affected. 
um, and living with it. Nobody in my, so I'm third generation that we know of um, who has been tested in sort of my direct line. And uh, so the grandparent tier was a 36 um, and he died and we sent, shipped his brain off to McLean's and um, he, he had also been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. They said it was just a terribly Alzheimer's riddled brain. It was just one of the worst they'd ever seen. They saw no, uh, on postmortem, no signs of Huntington's at all. He was how old? Oh boy, I don't know. I mean, 80s. Huntington's happens when you have these three base pair repeats in the Huntington gene and they exceed a certain length and that causes the pathology and there's some intermediate number of repeats that are less likely to result in full-blown Huntington's but that are at some risk of something. But you have 37? Seven. Yeah. yeah. So my, my parent has 37, my grandparent had 36. Um, it anticipates in, in both ova and mm-hmm. sperm, but mu- is much more likely to do so in sperm. It's, I guess, more unstable. So it was, quote, lucky. Those are air quotes that I'm making. Lucky that my, um, that the so affected parent. I'm not quite sure what language to use. Right. Um, because the carrier. The par- yeah, the carrier, right. Um, parent is, I don't know, late 60s, um, certainly unaffected in any clinical sense, um, as am I. Now, of course, as you mentioned, there are these in these in between, you know, CAG repeats. Uh, I think I think we are learning more and more about sort of subclinical sequelae of you know the proteins misfolding or whatever. And I think subclinically, you know, emotionally and cognitively, there there are some effects to be seen. So, you know, hey, maybe I'd already be a full professor if I didn't have a thirty-seven. You know, and can I blame it on that? So who knows, right? I mean, I, I'm an academic, so I'm a little weird. And <laughs> how do you tease apart? whether that's just me, at some point, I guess it doesn't really matter. I guess I'm wondering how, if at all, it informs your work. So you and I serve on the board of directors of the Open Humans Foundation. You're a participant in the Personal Genome Project in which people make their genomic data public without much of an effort at de-identification. So, given your 37 CAG status, has that given you pause about being involved with this kind of research or getting sequenced? Well, so it didn't give me pause about getting sequenced at all, because I figure that's surely, that's surely the big dark secret in my, in my genome. Well, first of all, you know, current sequencing technology generally doesn't pick up CAG repeats and complete genomics that did that did mine through PGP. It did not, so, nor did 23andMe or any of that. So there's that. But even if it had, uh, I sort of figure, boy, I, you know, I already, I already have that. Like, how much could it really be? I, mean, I could have had two copies of APOE4, you know, thrown in there for fun. Um, but it sort of, I think it probably made me less concerned than the average person just just in the sense of well I've dealt with what is a I don't quite know how to characterize it I mean it's on the one hand it's uh, obviously can be extremely serious fatal and really terrible this American life 
memorably described Huntington's as like it was like MS and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's all rolled out up into one. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's great. Uh, and it, you know, if I can deal with the uncertainty of that, then you know, like whether my asparagus, you know, whether my pee smells like asparagus, or whether I, you know, I'm like have like a one percent increased um, lifetime risk of of some sort of cancer is probably trivial by comparison. As far as sharing the data, though, um, my concern has been, and obviously one that, you know, per my talking about it right at this very second, I'm, I'm working my way through, but my concern has been that people are not especially literate about this kind of stuff. And in particular, Huntington's, Huntington's is always identified as the classic case of autosomal dominant horrible fatal disease and you have a 50% chance of getting it and you know if, if you have an affected parent you have a 50% chance of getting it and that's it without any nuance that was what was taught to me as a bioethics student as an undergrad so you know when when I when you know my parents first approached me and said well you know grandparent you know has a 37 and there's Huntington's and now I thought hold the phone here there's been some sort of confusion because we'd have half of our family would be dead of this and I knew that not to be the case and so what so that was an education for me um, and I continue to meet people who are very sophisticated intelligent people who are not aware no particular reason why they necessarily should be about the sort of reduced penetrant alleles and so I certainly did not as someone relatively junior in my career did not want anyone to say, oh, let's not take a chance on her because she'll, and that's combined with some of, some media focus on some people with Huntington's who have, say, I mentioned This American Life, you know, they ran this story that was this big mystery about this doctor who had murdered his, his father. And it was a mystery. He seemed so normal. And what could, what could have caused him to snap? And at the very end, it was, aha, it's because he had Huntington's. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, boy, um, you know, you don't know that Huntington's had an influence. I'm perfectly ready to believe that it did. I'm not denying that it can manifest itself that way. But I don't think that there's evidence that yeah. most people with Huntington's become murderers. And so, you know, all of this kind of information or misinformation gives me pause in, in who knows this, you know. At this point, um, you know, people talk more about the risks of information getting out than they do of the costs or the burdens of keeping quiet about things. And I'm just, I'm kind of tired, you know. It's, a, it's weird to sit in a, in a seminar and have people talk about Huntington's. You know, it just happens constantly in the field that I'm in. Uh, it's, it's around. And I'm just a very open person by nature. I just am, for better or worse. And, and your family, there, there was never a, okay, we have to circle the wagons and take an oath of secrecy. No. There were the grandparent by the time this happened, you know, he was hospitalized, but he was towards the end of his life with Alzheimer's. I mean, there was not, it wasn't like the, you know, he faced any sort of career discrimination. That was probably mostly true of my parent as well. So it was really, I was the one that was most vulnerable in terms of um, certainly career relationship prospects. I wasn't married at the time, that kind of thing. But no, there was never any circling the wagons and you know my line of the family did reach out 
to the other line and share and the other branches and say this is what's going on and you know people reacted very differently and many of them react in the way that you that seems typical in the literature of a lot of Huntington's families where it's just don't want to know don't want to be tested don't want to be don't want to know we're just going to go about you know going to get married have kids just go about our lives um, as we normally would and that's the way you know that was their that was their choice people who I'm related to who have died or are living with Huntington's I do not know well at all they are not close to me so I have not watched parents die of Huntington's, you know, I have not had that experience. I, nor do I, am I expecting to get it. I mean, I'm, I'm cognizant that it's possible. So when I got my, my result at MGH, they sort of slid a piece of paper, like a scatter plot across the desk. And I think it maybe had like 10 or 12 data points on it of 37s. And it was, they were, it was all over the place of people who, you know, were 90 and symptom free and people who were 30 and had manifested the disease and everywhere in between. And that has tremendous ascertainment bias. Uh, and so I would love personally, both as someone who has to live with this 50-50 risk. It was a, first it was a 50-50 risk, you know, had I inherited my parents' bad Huntington allele. And then it was a different type of 50-50 risk. Now it was, well, you've, you've gotten this allele of 37, but will it manifest in disease in your natural lifetime? Let's go with 50-50 and call that your odds, shall we? Based on 12 data points, right? So as someone who's kind of living with that, and also as just someone who is very passionate about evidence-based everything, I, I would love to see something like what we're doing here at Geisinger with BRCA, where we're quasi-screening healthy populations to see what the actual incidence is. I have not pushed that. I... And I don't know whether it's I've just been busy with other things and it's the secrecy stuff or whether there's a part of me that because I'll admit, I mean, I'm normally just fine. I really am. Every once in a while, when I dig into the literature, especially in the subclinical stuff, I mean, it does kind of it's a little bit like having a, you know, a breast exam and they found a lump and you have to wait for some period of time before the mammogram and the ultrasound. So for your audience, this might be a little bit more of an accessible experience. And it's like every, you sitting there palpating this lump and, oh my God, is it a tumor that's growing right this second, you know, in my body? And it's kind of like that's always there. And so there could well be a part of me that says, you know, if I get deeply into this work, am I just going to be experiencing that in a more intense way? And do I really want to go there? So that could be it. Um, but I also think that it's, it seems really unlikely that anyone is going to want to do anything like that project. Um, it's just so, I mean, as you say, even some of the people who have been advocating the space for, for decades are not supportive, as I understand it, of, yeah, let's get clear on, on what the prevalence is. Um, so, yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. You're welcome. Many, many thanks to Michelle Meyer and to you for listening to the Genome Podcast. An abbreviated version of this interview can be found in the fall 2017 issue of Genome Magazine, which comes out quarterly and is available online for absolutely free at genomemag.com and by mail. Go to genomemag.com and click subscribe at the top of the page for a free Dead Tree subscription. 
talk to you next time.